Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome, everyone, to this Federalist Society virtual event. As this morning, we appreciate the panelists' time and all of you who are calling in. Uh, this morning, June 24th, 2021, we're discussing the Supreme Court's recent ruling in United States v. Arthrex. I'm Nick Marr, Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that expressions of opinion on our call today are those of our experts. We have a great panel. Uh, before we get started, and I'll just introduce our moderator, Quick note to our audience that we'll be looking to you for questions. So please submit those via chat or the Q&A chat function, and we'll take them as we can, probably in the second part of the call. All right, and with that, we're very pleased to be joined this morning uh, to moderate this conversation by Professor Kristen Osinga. She's the Austin E. Owen Research Scholar and Professor of Law at the University of Richmond School of Law. Her longer bio can be found on our website, as with the longer bios of, of uh, all our participants. But in the interest of time, getting right to it, thanks very much for being with us. Kristen, the floor is yours. Great. Thanks, Nick. Uh, as Nick mentioned, I'm Kristen Ozinga, uh, and I'm joined today by two of my friends, uh, Greg Dolan from the University of Baltimore School of Law and the judging part of Palau, uh, and Dimitri Karstedt from the George Washington Law School. So as Nick mentioned, today we are covering the Supreme Court's decision in the United States versus Arthrex case that was handed down on Monday. Uh, which is June 21st. Uh, I'm going to provide a very short background, and then Greg and Dimitri will explain the various opinions. And there were four opinions in this case, and 72 pages written. Uh, so there's a lot to talk about. After they lay down the decisions uh, and the positions of the various justices, we're going to talk about who's right, who's wrong, and what the larger implications this decision may have for patent law, for administrative law and beyond. Uh, as Nick mentioned also at the end of our discussion, there should be some time for questions and we'll let you know how to uh, get your questions to our panelists. So this case started out as a patent dispute, specifically when Smith and Nephew and Arthrocare filed a petition for inter-parties review of a patent owned by Arthrex. So uh, the inter-parties review procedure at issue in this case uh, was part of the Leahy Smith American Invents Act of 2011. And what that is, is it's a quasi-judicial procedure within the patent office that allows third parties to challenge the validity of issued patents. Uh, so uh, just very uh, superficially, the petitioner asks the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, PTAB, to consider whether one or more claims of an issued patent owned by someone else is valid. And the director of the Patent and Trademark Office decides whether to institute one of these inter-parties review proceedings. If it's instituted, then a three-judge panel, usually, of administrative patent judges or PTAB judges or APJs will then conduct the inter-parties review in a, in a quasi-judicial way. After the panel uh, hears uh, the evidence, uh, it will make a decision and the board will issue a final written decision determining the patentability of the challenge claims. And then after a period for appeal has passed, the director of the patent office will issue a certificate canceling any claims the board determines to be unpatentable. Uh, so in this case, Smith and Nephew uh, petitioned for an inter-parties review uh, that was instituted. A three-judge panel of PTAB judges determined that a number of claims of the patent belonging to Arthrex were invalid and unpatentable, and the board issued its final written decision. 
Arthrex then appealed to the United States Court of Appeals for Federal Circuit and argued that the appointment of the judges that heard the inter-parties review were not constitutionally appointed. So the United States Constitution provides that principal officers must be appointed by the president with the advice and consent of Senate, while inferior officers can be appointed by the president or courts of law or heads of departments. So the PTAB judges who hear these inter-parties reviews are appointed by the Secretary of Commerce in consultation with the director of the patent office. And so Arthrex argued that these PTAB judges, based on the authority they hold and the functions they do, were principal officers. And because they were not appointed by the president with advice and consent of Senate, they were unconstitutionally appointed. And so therefore these inter-parties reviews are unconstitutional. The federal circuit agreed with Arthrex's argument holding that the APJs were indeed principal officers. And to solve the dilemma of having this entire body, the PTAB, being unconstitutionally uh, composed, uh, the Federal Circuit severed the removal protection that had been given to the APJs in an effort to make them look more like inferior officers and preserve the rest of the inter-parties scheme. Um, not surprisingly, nobody was happy about this. Uh, each of the governments, Smith and Nephew and Arthrex, requested rehearing en banc unsuccessfully at the Federal Circuit. And then each of those parties filed a petition for cert at the Supreme Court, uh, seeking review of various aspects of the Federal Circuit's decision. Uh, the Supreme Court granted cert to determine whether the PTAB and its structure uh, is consistent with the Appointments Clause of the Constitution, and if not, what the appropriate remedy should be. As I mentioned, the decision generated four separate opinions. You might need a Venn diagram for this. I saw one on Twitter this morning that they do exist. Uh, Justice Roberts wrote for the majority in a three-part opinion, uh, holding that the appointment of the PTAB judges as inferior officers was incompatible with the authority they have in the patent system. And for those parts of his opinion, he was joined by Justices Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. In the final part of the majority opinion, Roberts wrote that the Federal Circuit's fix, that is removing the PTAB judge's tenure, was not the solution, and instead that every decision must instead be reviewable. That part of the majority opinion, it was joined by Justices uh, Breyer, Alito, Kavanaugh, Barrett, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Um, so then we have the other opinions. Justice Gorsuch filed an opinion concurring in part, but dissenting as to the remedy. Justice Breyer filed an opinion dissenting as to whether or not this is actually a problem, but agreeing with the remedy if one must be granted, joined by Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. And Justice Thomas filed a dissenting opinion, joined by Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, as to the non-existence of the problem with the appointment of the PTAB judges. So if that was confusing, good. I explained it exactly right. Uh, and now to clear this all up, I'm going to turn to my expert panelists. Uh, Greg is going to go first and explore, uh, explain the Roberts majority opinion, as well as the Gorsuch opinion. Uh, and then he'll be followed by Dimitri, who will explain the Breyer and Thomas opinions. And then we'll talk about right, wrong, and implications. So Greg, I turn it over to you. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Federal Study. It's always a pleasure to be on one of these phone calls, it is a particular pleasure to be with my friends, Kristen and Dimitri, uh, with whom we often uh, agree, sometimes disagree, uh, but always, um, you know, always come to some sort of new understanding about uh, legal issues involved. So I'm looking forward to the continuation of this discussion. Um, so Robert's opinion, as Kristen suggested, come, comes in two parts because the case came up in two parts. The first question that the court had to wrestle with was whether or not 
the APJs are principal or inferior officers given the authority of the exercise, given the, the statutory scheme that only allows the board, um, not the director of the patent office to exercise the power to cancel patents and assigns the director only ministerial duty of shall issue a cancellation certificate or confirmation certificate or you know uh, whether or not a director retains sufficient amount of supervision where although he might have this ministerial duty to issue a certificate given how he can supervise the board by providing rules removing judges adding new judges etc ultimately these are just inferior officers so that was question number one and question number two was that to the extent the first question was answered uh, in a way to hold that the judges, the APJs are in fact principal officers, the question is what to do about it. Because to the extent that they are principal officers, everybody agreed that they were not constitutionally appointed. They were not nominated by the president, they were not confirmed by the Senate. So, to the, so if the court were to conclude that these are principal officers, the question is what to do about it. Uh, as I think, uh, like I said, we did uh, a, a preview uh, of this decision back in December, or I guess post-view of the argument when the case was argued, I think it was argued in December. No, I'm wrong. So it was argued back in, um, I think, February. It was the briefs were filed in December. So we did it a few months ago when we discussed this case right after the argument, as we, I think, all of us predicted then that it's unlikely that anybody was going to endorse the federal circuit remedy of making these APJs removable at will, and ultimately we were right. So Venn diagram notwithstanding, that, one, that part was easy. That was a nine to zero. No one endorsed the federal circuit's remedy. But let's go back to the first questions. Are these principal or inferior officers? And uh, Justice Roberts' opinion is a little bit baffling in my view, because he had an opportunity to make a, basically draw a clear, bright line. It was advocated by, um, for example, uh, in a article by Professor Gary Lawson, it was advocated by a brief that uh, I submitted together with Ilya Shapiro for Cato Institute and a number of other uh, amici where the bright line was that unless uh, there's somebody above you, not merely in title or not merely in sort of in grandeur, but somebody above you who can reverse that very decision that is being contested, you are a principal officer. That's kind of the bright line we proposed. And uh, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion almost kind of gets to this line, but not quite. He seems to hang a lot on this idea that unlike the case which everybody sort of relied on, both in the concurrence of dissents and the majority opinion, that case is called Edmonds, which concerned uh, the judges in the United States Coast Guard Court of Criminal Appeals. All those judges were appointed by the Secretary of Transportation, also not by the president, not subject to Senate confirmation. Um, the reason the court a number of years ago upheld that arrangement was because the an appeal lied from that court to another Article One as opposed to Article Three tribunal, uh, whose judges were indeed appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate. Plus, there was some supervisory power by the, the Judge Advocate General of the Navy, who could or the Coast Guard, who could also um, supervise how the the trials or appeals with the Court of Criminal Appeals proceeded. And so Justice Chief Justice Roberts relied heavily on Edmonds, but really emphasized the part of Edmonds 
that was absent in this case, that there, unlike in Edmonds, there is no higher level tribunal to which um, uh, PTAB uh, uh, decisions could be appealed to within the executive branch. He could have just stopped there and said, unless there's such a tribunal, such an individual exists, then everybody who exercises the final power or final say on behalf of the United States is in fact a uh, principal officer. But as he got to this line, he pulled back. He left a fair amount of wiggle room to say that there might be other situations where uh, perhaps a more sort of functional approach, a more kind of indirect supervision may be sufficient. Uh, it may be that I'm overreading that opinion, but uh, you know, maybe it's just a vintage Justice Roberts where he doesn't have to say, you know, he doesn't like saying more if he can just basically resolve a case on a very narrow ground. Uh, but it's just to me, it seemed odd where, you know, um, instead of kind of just drawing that one particular strand out of Edmonds, he really, really leaned heavily on that fact of lack of review and yet didn't say that that is sine qua non of making principal versus inferior officer distinction. But nonetheless, because the majority of five justice majority of uh, Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Alito, uh, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch and Barrett concluded uh, that um, this review this review is sort of absent, uh, that makes APJ's principal officers, which of course then led us to question number two. Since if these are principal officers, at least the power they exercise, right? And I guess uh, later on, Dimitri and I will get into debate, is it reasonable to call these APJ's principal officers? But let's put it, so let's just to slice up that question for a moment. So if the power that these individuals exercise is the power that can only be exercised by principal officers, then it follows that these individuals cannot exercise that power because they were not appointed as the principal officers would have been appointed, i.e. by the president subject to Senate confirmation. So the question became what to do about it. Again, uh, sort of full disclosure, like I said, I filed a brief on this and together with a number of other uh, Amici, we suggested that there's lots of ways to kind of to square that circle and different ways have different costs and benefits. So for example, one way could have been done is to, ha to, do, to have that sort of second level tribunal, just like a court of appeals for the armed forces, article one tribunal within the executive branch. His Article Two Tribunal. Uh, another way of doing it is basically have a director have the final say. So, a director have a personal, not that he necessarily has to exercise it, but has the power of personal review. Yet another one would be, for example, scrapping the whole process altogether and uh, reassigning the adjudication of patents back to Article Three, where it has been for you know two hundred some years before AIA, which is ultimately what Justice Gorsuch suggested. So, there's lots of way of doing this, and picking one versus the other involves a lot of policy choices. And so a number of Amishin, myself included, we advocated that the courts sort of leave that question alone, not endorse the federal circuit remedy, which the court did not, and just kick it back to Congress so Congress can decide which one of these issues they like better. And the reason, for example, we suggested, and I'll uh, get to a moment what the court actually did. So the reason we suggested it that way is because um, the patent inter-parties review processes and post-grant review processes are kind of a weird animal. On one hand, uh, as the court decided just, I think, two terms ago in oil states, this is a type of procedure that can constitutionally be done in the executive branch. On the other hand, it was very clear that Congress wanted some sort of neutral adjudicator. They didn't want this decision to be done by 
based on who has the most pull in the administration. And they didn't want, you know, for example, Apple to go, uh, you know, complain to the Secretary of uh, Commerce to uh, when, you know, this doesn't go their way to fire the patent office director. There wanted to be some sort of insulation from that type of politics. And it's, it is somewhat hard to square that circle, which is why perhaps for a long time, patent adjudication was done by the federal Article III judiciary. It can be done, but it's not easy. And so that's why so for a number of me, she advocated, let Congress figure out how to make, how to properly strike that balance. The five justice majority, and again, it's a weird five justice majority because on the remedy portion, Justice Gorsuch parted ways with a previous five justice majority on the merits. And so in order to get to any sort of remedy, uh, Justice uh, Breyer, as well as I guess Justice Kagan and Sotomayor had to provide this grudging vote where it's like, look, we shouldn't do this anyways, but since we're doing it, I will give you the vote to come to some sort of remedy that's kind of the least worst outcome from Justice Breyer's perspective. Uh, so it's a different, a shifting majority on the remedy. And the remedy became that uh, it's the director who will now have the opportunity to review. So kind of if, if the complaint was, look, there was nobody to reviewing these APJs, nobody with the power to vacate their decision, to, re, uh, to reverse their decision. Well, now we have that guy. And that guy is going to be director of the patent office. Director of the patent office is presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed. Problem solved. Of course, like I said, that potentially leads to other problems because director, of course, is a political animal, politically appointed, politically responsible, not with no tenure protection, fireable at will. And so now we do have, we've solved the appointments clause problems, but potentially uh, uh, raise some due process problems as well. Um, I'll, and I'll stop shortly, I guess, one more thing that I wanted to add in terms of, uh, well, I guess I have to cover Justice Gorsuch's opinion, I'm sorry. So, um, but one more thing kind of, I thought sort of a bit odd about Justice Roberts's opinion is that it, um, it reminded me in some sense about, uh, uh, it reminded me of NFIB, where um, in order to save the statute, because kind of Justice Roberts assumed that Congress would want something rather than nothing, the statute was rewritten. So the way Justice Roberts arrived at his remedy, he said uh, section, I think it's 3B, if I'm correct, section 3B, which limits uh, who can grant for hearings and who can reverse decision to the board itself, he said this section is no longer enforceable as against the director. And I, the reason I thought that was odd is because usually when you find a section to be unconstitutional, right, you do say, well, that section is unenforceable and, you know, maybe it is separable, maybe it's not. But here it's, it's uh, and said, so, look, the government can't enforce that section against a particular individual or a particular person can't act. But here by sort of making that section 3B unenforceable, saying only the board itself can grant three hearings, it's not clear what that means. Because if you take a pencil and just strike that section out, it doesn't mean that anybody else can grant re-hearings either. So it becomes somewhat odd, you know, as odd step as to say, well, this section no longer is enforceable, but, you know, but we're basically gonna write a new section. So it's a rewrite of the statute, which Justice Roberts has done a couple of times before, makes it for a bit of a weird uh, adjudication. So in one sense, it's very much judicial modesty. So you do as little as possible. On the other hand, it is huge judicial aggrandizement uh, in basically rewriting the statute. I promise I'll cover Justice Gorsuch and I'll do it very quickly. Justice Gorsuch, like I said, joined the merits opinion, uh, dissented on the, uh, on the remedy. 
And he spent most of his, and he decided on the remedy for the reasons that I already kind of highlighted that I critique as to, said, look, it's a policy choice like Congress do it. But he did spend a lot of his time basically lamenting that his view in the case that I already mentioned, oil states, which is a decision, I think, two or three terms ago, uh, where uh, there was a more kind of frontal attack on IPR, saying this entire process is unconstitutional because patents are vested rights and can only be uh, canceled by an Article Three judiciary. Uh, Justice Gorsuch agreed with that view, but he was on a losing end of a 7-2 majority, interestingly enough, with Justice Roberts. Uh, and so he spent a fair amount of his dissent lamenting that the court did not agree with his view in oil states. And again, as somebody who filed a brief in that case as well, urging the court to take the position that Justice Gorsuch ultimately took. So perhaps I'm somewhat partial, but um, uh, you know, I think there is some force to the argument saying that, look, we made the wrong turn with oil states, and now we're basically trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, and none of the solutions are really good. We're only talking about perhaps least bad ones. And really where we went wrong is several years ago in oil states. We should have struck it down on the basis that these decisions ought to be made by Article Three Judiciary, just like they have been for the last 200 odd years. And so that's kind of uh, where Justice Gorsuch came out. I think I've talked long enough, and I think I can turn it over to Dimitri to discuss the dissents, and then we can talk about who's right and who's wrong. Thanks, Greg. That's uh, awesome. Dimitri, go ahead. Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks to the Federalist Society for having me back. Uh, I remember uh, the enjoyable discussion we had back in March, I think, right after oral arguments, and uh, you know, predicting that probably uh, you know this is not going to survive constitutional scrutiny, but at the same time, the whole system isn't going to go down. And I think, you know, everyone's prediction predictions in that regard were correct. And, um, and now it's sort of time to discuss, uh, discuss the aftermath. So Greg, I think did a, did a great job of uh, covering kind of the principal opinion, the chief justice Roberts opinion in the case and, um, and the Gorsuch opinion as well. I will talk about uh, the Thomas and Breyer opinions actually. So for vote kind purposes, uh, Breyer's opinion is really important because it, it provided the, three key votes for saving the PTAB, right? For basically agreeing with the remedy uh, that the Roberts opinion um, wrote in, but Gorsuch did not join. So only got, initially got four votes at principle, that part of the principal opinion, and then the Breyer's opinion joined that. So for vote counting, that is an extremely important um, opinion, but I will start with a Thomas dissent because that is a principal dissent. And it's not clear actually if Thomas supported the severability analysis. I don't see given his jurisprudence, you would like uh, that analysis. So I'll, I'll start with that. But before sort of I get into the sense and, you know, I guess dissents by definition are saying the majority was wrong. So there's going to be a little bit of right or wrong already. Um, but um, uh, kind of the something that struck me at a Greg's presentation. So the move is you need political accountability. I mean, the reason why appointments clause is so important is you need political accountability. You need you know, really, really close supervision of these, uh, you know, these officers that are, you know, basically not appointed with that advice and consent of the Senate. But wait, you get political supervision, but that creates a potential bias. So we can't have that either. Right. So it creates uh, a real conundrum for the design of an administrative system when you say you need political supervision, accountability, but then that creates potential for bias. So maybe maybe the end game here is the whole system is illegitimate and, um, and, and maybe that's the answer, but that's not kind of ultimately how, um, how the votes uh, came down. So, so, right, so, so Breyer's opinion is elaboration of Thomas's opinion. Uh, and uh, Thomas's opinion is um, kind of uh, admirably textual to begin with. 
Uh, Thomas began by saying that uh, APJs, PTAP administrative patent judges, are inferior because they have superiors. And just textually, they have multiple superiors. They have the director and they have the secretary of commerce. They're really somewhat low on a totem pole of the administrative state and it's, uh, you know department of commerce. And it's not even clear if they supervise anyone at all, right? So they kind of write decisions for themselves. Uh, there's examiners, there is uh, uh, primary examiners and so on. It's not clear if APJs uh, supervise anyone. So they seem to be fairly inferior officers just in their status within the agencies. That's, uh, that's Thomas's first point. Uh, the second point uh, is sort of uh, harkening back to these cases. Uh, Greg mentioned one Edmund and other cases Morrison is that framers actually provided very little guidance on the line between inferior officers and principal officers. Um, and, uh, you know, they provided some mechanisms for appointment in, uh, for inferior officers, including even the courts. Uh, but other than that, so there's some process guidance, but not really a substantive guidance as to what constitute the features of one or the other. And sort of the uh, a theme in both the Thomas and Abari's opinions is that given so little guidance and given lack of clear lines, maybe we should just defer to Congress in most, but really, really clear egregious cases of, you know, Secretary of State uh, bypassing uh, the advice and consent process or something like that, uh, because it's just not clear what the line is. All right. So and I think kind of the majority in the end is uh, defensible and stare decisis purposes, because Edmund did say, right, that uh, an important factor in deciding principal versus inferior um, uh, line is uh, sort of having the final word for the agency. And uh, Thomas has a lot to say about that and a part of the opinion that only he wrote sort of historical analysis. But um, but the, the part that the four, four justices joined the dissent uh, basically just says, right, as a matter of uh, constitutional text, as a matter of function, it's just not clear um, if uh, APJs play the function of principal officers. So what are the mechanisms of supervision, right? So as Greg said, right, just grandeur is not enough. You know, I'm signing a paycheck and that's it. But there's actually a lot of supervision here, right? So directors can initiate a rulemaking. So for example, um, a claim construction, should the APJs use broadest reasonable interpretation uh, standard for claim construction versus a Phillips standard? That is a huge mechanism of control. Uh, right, ex, uh, ex ante, and so on, right? The directors can have a presidential opinion panel. They can, um, uh, they can basically take, uh, take an opinion by, you know, APJs, and the director can compose a panel of um, himself or herself, and then the commissioner of patents and the deputy AP or the chief, chief judge of the PTAP and basically write that in into the PTO precedent. And yes, it sort of uh, smacks a little bit of stacking. We'll, we'll talk to that more, talk about that more. But that's something else the director can do to control uh, how uh, how PTAP judges do their jobs, right? And of course, there's all, besides ex ante control, there actually is ex post control too, right? Of substantive opinions, they can uh, the director can take um, a, a regular PTAP opinion and then through the rehearing process, right? Basically establishing a precedent, reverse it, and so on. And yes, again, that would require a director putting himself on the uh, on the PTAP panel along with the commissioner of patents and the chief APJ, but that has been done. And I was just looking at recently, it's called POP, or presidential opinion panel case, cases, and it's done, it's done quite a bit, and it can involve a reversal of the panel 
um, as well as right um, kind of creation of rules um, ex ante for the PTAP judges to follow. So that is a lot of supervision, right? A lot of supervision. And um, the the majority just sort of, uh, the resp majority response seems to say, well, um, it, it just, there's a due process problem to it. It's not clear if sole review by the director is any better from the due process purposes at creating a panel of three, but uh, we can leave it at that. Uh, but it's sort of, you know, as, as far as supervision is concerned, there is a ton of supervision within the PTO already. And then um, then Thomas goes on and makes some more textual points. You know, nothing about the appointment of APJs was improper. They were, they were appointed uh, by the Secretary of Commerce, uh, right, which is a department head and so on. Um, and um, to the extent that the chain of command is broken, right, to the extent that there isn't, um, you know, an intervening decision by the uh, agency head somehow, the, the director. Um, I mean, that, that violation, that line is broken every time that there is an independent agency, right? So, so for example, uh, the Court of Appeals to Veterans Claims, which Greg mentioned, is not accountable to the president. Those judges aren't appointed by the sitting president. Uh, they supervise the VA, uh, Veterans Administration, that is true, but they're not accountable to the president. They're an independent entity, right? So, so that chain of command is broken in administrative state constantly. So I guess what is happening is, right, so there's sort of this interplay between the vesting clause, which is a, ensures a chain of command, and the appointments clause. And, the, and, and Thomas's accusation is sort of uh, the majority drawing the line between the two and sort of trying to deduce this new power. And um, I think the dig at the end of the opinion joined by four justices is quite remarkable. It says, I would not be so quick to stare deeply into the penumbras of the clauses to identify new structural limitations. Of course, that calls back uh, penumbras and emanations analysis of Justice Douglas and, um, you know, opinions like Griswold. And he, that's exactly what uh, Thomas is accusing the majority uh, of, of, of doing here. Right. So. Um, and, and so the, the, it stands to reason I'd sort of uh, to take this accusation to heart because uh, the Court of Appeals to Veterans Claims is one example uh, that, that Roberts uses of executive branch control. And by the way, right, examiner decisions and ex parte proceedings, which have been around for a long time, if there's a rejection, it's not appealable to the director either, right? It goes to the PTAP. So we'll see. Um, maybe some um, some further developments where uh, maybe our ex parte examination process with appeals to the PTAB that then go to the federal circuit is also legitimate. But that's the way it's been done for a long time. Uh, and, and remember, right, uh, the, the Court of Customs of Patent Appeals, uh, it, it, you know, became an Article Three court in 1958, right? So you got a direct, you know, from the PTAB to the CCPA appeal uh, that's been going for a long time. And sort of the, you know, and, and this is not something that's mentioned in Thomas' opinion, but the bizarre implication of this is that if you strip the federal circuit of Article Three status, then all of a sudden we have a system that's okay because we just have uh, an, an Article One court and the executive branch reviewing the opinion, even though it's not accountable to the president, right? So um, so, so basically, right, the, the part of the opinion joined by four justices is, is just talking about how much supervision there really is in the system, nothing wrong with the process of appointment, and these officers act like you know, truly APJs, like uh, in, in inferior officers. Then there's longer analysis, uh, which is just by Justice Thomas, uh, basically saying that, um, right, the you know, kind of historical analysis that Principal office status, officer status was never meant to uh, 
you know, applied to low level officers like APJs to sign up some founding era, um, uh, founding era uh, analysis. And also you know, b- basically suggesting that Edmund has wrongly decided the sole agency theory that sort of um, making uh, making decisions that bind to speak on behalf of the agency is not the right test for appointments clause purposes. And uh, Thomas concludes his opinion saying it's something wrong when APJs are raised to the same levels as ambassadors and head of department as the Secretary of State, uh, and he just doesn't think that is supported historically. So, um, um, so he's really questioning the Edmund case in which the Roberts opinion is relying quite heavily. And I think, unlike Gray, I would say it does almost harden Edmunds into uh, a rule, right? That uh, speaking on behalf of the agency, because it's not clear what wiggle room is there. But Greg is right; uh, there is definitely some wiggle room. It's not the rule, but it's a very, very important uh, factor that you know the the officers say a final award on behalf of the agency. So, um, uh, so Breyer, so this is the Thomas opinion. I think Breyer, besides providing the key votes to save the PTAB, uh, focuses on this language of as they think proper in the appointments clause. So Congress has given a lot of leeway, again, to design a system. By the way, um, also full disclosure, I signed a brief. I co-authored with um, Alan Morris and Mark Lemley, among others, saying that um, there was supposed to be such leeway in the, in the, in the system. And I think you know, even though Breyer didn't cite our brief, I, I think uh, it, it seems like some of the opinions um, discussed there, including some of his own uh, the opinions, you also mentioned in the brief. So there has to be some judicial deference to congressional design. Even minimal judi- judicial deference should result in the affirmance of the scheme, right? This is a very activist majority, right? Trying to take things down without any deference, uh, right? So again, um, uh, Breyer focuses a little bit on, on APJ independence and how some independence is important uh, because of the, this is a sort of a technical agency, uh, but uh, but it, like Thomas, he does uh, it does remind us that there is a reconsideration power of veto opinions that director uh, has uh, can initiate and sort of just says that the the Roberts opinion is very formalist in the way that is um, that is just not not defensible, right? It's creating judicial rules. So to the extent that there is sort of a writing in or judicial legislation, it begins from the start, right, from the invalidation of the whole system, right? Uh, the court is imposing its own policy choices on the agency, um, unfortunately. Uh, and uh, he would take uh, a functional approach uh, or sort of and, and leave it to Congress, which would be a good thing. And, and under, that, under that analysis, uh, uh, PTAP judges, APJs uh, would be uh, inferior officers. But he is okay in, with the remedy in the end, right? Uh, so he he joins he and the two joining justices Kagan and Sotomayor join part three um, and uh, agrees that you know the, the system uh, sort of that that part of uh, section six that Greg mentioned can be modified in such a way um, as as to allow director kind of the final award on every PTAP PTAP decision which I think the director already has but um, but now the director will formally have after this uh, constitutional cure. So I think that's all I'm gonna say about that. I also have talked for a long time and looking forward to further debate. Great, uh, thanks Dimitri. Uh, so so let's uh, move into talking a little bit about the implications, because I think we may have heard already who, what you think is right and what is wrong uh, through, through your uh, amici participation and, and what have you. One thing I was uh, curious about, sorry, I'm just throwing questions out and you guys aren't expecting them. Um, we practiced ahead of time and, and this question never came up. I was curious about this question Greg, you mentioned, I think Greg, or maybe it was Dimitri, uh, that that Breyer uh, and Sotomayor and Kagan grudgingly joined along to give the remedy uh, the necessary amount of votes. 
you do you really think it's grudgingly or do you think it's because Breyer doesn't like patents as much as I do and saving the PTAB is probably uh, a, a way to continue to get rid of patents uh, and Breyer doesn't like I'm not speaking for Justice Breyer here, but my 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 inclination is he doesn't love patents as much as I do. So maybe it wasn't grudging at all. Any thoughts on that question? I think it's a grudging in a sense, not that, you know, not that he's unhappy that PTAP was saved. I think it's a grudging in a sense that grudging that he has to do it in the first place. I think, you know, he would have been happier if, you know, if his view that, um, you know, this functional analysis, which of course he's famous for, but which, you know, for example, although I don't teach admin law, but I, you know, I do occasionally teach other courses written by Justice Breyer, including NIP. It makes it just impossible to teach. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of, well, I know when I see it, you come to us next time and I'll tell you what what's a good function, what's a bad function. Uh, and it's multifactorial test. Um, it's true, as we just said, Justice Breyer does accuse the robbers of it being, uh, you know, very formalist. But, you know, as Mitra was talking, I really wanted to pipe in and say, you know, well, you say it's like it's a bad thing. You know, there's, there are things to be said for bright line rules. It makes life easier for Congress. It makes life easier for lower courts. And so, so in that sense, I think it, it was crushing. But yeah. I think you're right. I, I, don't, I don't think Justice Breyer is a huge uh, friend of patents or the patent bar. And to be frank, I don't think neither is Justice Thomas. If you look at sort of Justice Thomas's opinions um, over time, and, and you know, that perhaps is, not super surprising. So Justice Thomas is perhaps the most libertarian justice of them all right now. And certainly libertarian community is very much of two minds. There are some people who think like, look, patents are real property rights and they're to be treated like any other property right and full stop. And others sort of take a view that patents are much more akin to these bad government grants of the, you know, where you sort of, you give things to favored parties and you uh, prevent the rest of society from doing things. And that's, Bad and so we should limit it as much as possible. And so perhaps Justice Thomas uh, has imbibed a bit of this kind of, of uh, cup number two. Yeah, I, I think I, I, you know, to kind of go back to Kristen's question, I think there's definitely some real policy here. Just, you know, the fifth vote was lost because Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch does not like the PTAB and likes patents. All right. So Breyer and uh, his two joiners have come in and, you know, and, and maybe, I mean, I, I think Kate, Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor's positions are you know, may, maybe just maybe more general administrative state jurisprudence, but certainly there is that real politic there, right? I think, well, well this, this is sort of, I mean, the larger implications of this case, right? There are some that hope that sort of the patent, the whole PTAP system would get taken down. Um, and um, on, on the substance of matter, right, groups like U.S. Inventor have won, right, on the constitutional grounds. But it's still, I got an email uh, an hour and I'm on the list saying, well, uh, the Supreme Court affirms this horrible tribunal, right, because it's still in existence, right? And so I think the goal here really is to sort of and take down the system by any means necessary. And, you know, I... You know, I have 99 problems with the pizza, but appointments clause eight ain't one, right? And I, I'm not a by any means necessary kind of person. And to the extent that, you know, you need to distort constitutional doctrine if you like or dislike patents. Uh, so I'm happy that further harm was avoided. And I'm happy that Breyer provided uh, the votes for uh, for that. Just, be, just as Gorsuch withdrew his vote by probably his intense dislike of the pizza. I, I think from now on, we should have Dimitri provide the catchphrases for these uh, telephora because that 99 problems catchphrase uh, was absolutely brilliant. Um, so 
So we kind of have skirted around a little bit about what this means for the, the PTAB, and maybe the answer is not a, a terrible much, but, but what are the implications that you uh, gentlemen see for, for both the PTAB going forward? And then also, is this going to change administrative law? Is, is this going to flesh out admins? Is this, does this have no bearing on admins because the PTAB is its own weird little uh, world, et cetera? Uh, so we'll switch things up. I'll, I'll give it to Dimitri first and then Greg after. I think it will change administrative law to the extent that the, the part of Edmonds where say, having a far, final word on behalf of the agency or as Justice Scalia's opinion said, right, render a final decision on behalf of the United States becomes such an important factor. Um, and uh, Chief Justice Roberts' opinion specifically mentions a board of contract appeals and related bodies a sort of potentially in violation of the system, my, my government contracts colleagues are already freaking out uh, to uh, to to not to put a kind of a nicer face on it to say that maybe the whole, that whole system is invalid. So I think there will be scrutiny. There are definitely many or significant numbers of, of structures where there isn't that final review um, by uh, an officer appointed with advice and consent uh, that that could create create real problems. I think right by and I think Edmonds. Um, again, it's there is wiggle room. It's not clear what wiggle room there'll be. There will be maybe there's you know general services administrator uh, supervising the board of contract appeal on certain powers, and maybe there was an easier fix, and maybe there isn't. Right? I think here the remedy presented itself very clearly. Right? The director is ahead. The director has reviewed um, uh, the lower officers at the PTO before. In the trademark context, Congress actually passed legislation during the pendency of Arthur giving that power to the director. So it seems like, at least as a matter of sort of congressional intent or agency structure, it was an easy fix. It's not so clear that that fix can be made in other agencies. So I think it will affect the administrative law. I think, I think it will affect other agencies. And I think the next target is probably the Board of Contracts Appeals, where you have that um, that sort of a structure, and and the other the other thing I wanted to say in response to um, uh, Kristen's question is that it's not clear delegation of statutory authority. So if right the head of the agency delegates authority to judicial officers um, within the agencies who are not appointed with advice, it's not clear that's okay. There's a case um, uh, that got litigated in the DC Circuit Dodge of constitutional issues about judicial officers within the USDA. Um, uh, that you know are delegated authority from the secretary, but are not themselves appointed. And whether you really have to have review by the secretary for there to be constitution constitutional structure of the agency. So there will be a lot more litigation. I think this case opens a lot more by basically saying it wasn't just you know loose language in Edmonds. We're not disavowing Edmonds. Now you really have to have some sort of formal review by by an officer. So I don't think it's just a pizza because there are there are. Uh, agencies like like the PTAB, uh, unlike, you know, as, as, as the chief's opinion acknowledged. So I mostly agree with Dimitri. Like I said, oftentimes our disagreements are very much at the margins. I think our general outlook is very similar. And just to be clear, by the way, I'm also not by any means necessary kind of guy. I actually do care deeply about the constitutional structure and, and not kind of like uh, endorsing cockamamie theories simply because I dislike PTAB. And I do dislike PTAB, but I did think that there was an appointments clause problem, um, and you know, uh, so in terms of its effect on PTAP, I don't think there's going to be much. Uh, I don't think the directors all of a sudden are going to just you know start spending you know twenty hours a day reviewing every single PTAP decision and doing real kind of like dive into uh, you know into the weeds. 
I suspect he'll basically delegate his authority. Um, I suspect, uh, you know, I'm bad tea leaf leader, but I do suspect the delegation is probably fine as long as it's not a one-way ratchet. So as long as basically the director can say, okay, well, I've delegated, but now I've changed my mind, I can basically retake it. So as long as the director or any other sort of agency has, as long as that's fine, I think as long as that exists, I think uh, the court would endorse that. Uh, so I think kind of in, so there's this question about kind of legislation writing and practical reality. I think for most agencies, the practical reality is not gonna be that much different as long as the legis legislation authorizing those agencies' operation does say that look, it has to be made by the people who are the principal officers, even if they delegate. So for example, social security is very common. So the statute says, it's the Ministry of Social Security that makes the determinations on disability benefits, but they've delegated it to IPLs Council and they've delegated it to ALJs, but nonetheless, the decision is made in the name of and ultimately by the administrator, who of course is Senate confirmed. One kind of issue that I would wanna highlight, so Dmitry brought it up in his opening remarks about independent agencies and kind of, and the level of control. And so he's highlighted, for example, CAFC, where judges serve, I believe, 15 year terms the Article One Tribunal, but they're not necessarily responsible to this president. It cannot be terminated by a particular president. And so, and again, it's kind of, it's one of those issues where it becomes hard, where on one hand, you do need this chain of command. On the other hand, in, there are some situations where you do want independence, especially when you do an adjudicatory thing, whether it's PTAB or the CAFC or whether it's International Trade Commission or whether it's like Court of Federal Claims. There are a bunch of the, you know, that's kind of, it is, it's very much of a, you know, top balancing act. Uh, I think what potentially saves it is that at least once, sure, the people who currently serve on CFC are not directly responsible and cannot be fired by President Biden. Same thing with CAFC and ITC, et cetera. But at least at some point, you know, kind of our country presupposes that uh, there is, the presidency is a continuing thing. The president is not, but the presidency is. And so these individuals were appointed by the power of the chief magistracy. And, um, you know, they're imbued with that sort of authority by being appointed by this chief magistrate and confirmed by our upper chamber. And I think that sort of, um, that sort of formal process, this kind of this solemn process makes, uh, makes it uh, okay that they would render final decision on behalf of the United States. That having been said, I think truly independent agencies, right, aren't potentially ripe for especially ones that do things other than adjudication, are potentially ripe for re-examination. And I think there have been rumblings in the Supreme Court, not in this opinion, that suggested that perhaps truly independent agencies where the president has almost no control, uh, like for example, say FTC, where they don't really adjudicate, they mostly prosecute, they make rules, et cetera, but they may or may not survive this current uh, constitutional doctrine. And I'm not so sure it's a bad thing if you have really an executive agency executing the laws that post adjudicating, that it's kind of just floating out there, not subject to anybody's political control. I'm not sure it's such a great thing. You know, I'm certainly open to arguments, but it's 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 uh, something that needs, I think, potentially another look. So yes, there's going to be some effect on agencies, but I think it's yet another one of the piece of the puzzle to try to figure out whether or not kind of this. Um, Jurisprudence that will start with a new deal where you can have these sort of fourth branch, multiple fourth branches of governments, really is considered with the constitutional structure. Great. So I do want to remind our uh, participants that if you have any uh, questions, shoot them into the Q&A box or into the chat. We have about 
10 to 12 minutes left uh, while we're waiting to see if any of the attendees have any questions. I, I have one more question uh, for you guys. Um, so currently there is no director of the patent office. Uh, it hasn't been named yet by the new administration since Yanku resigned. There is a not acting director, but a person performing the duties of the director. Uh, so question, quick questions. Do you think Hirschfeld can review things in the name of the director at this point? Does he, is that part of his uh, duties that he's able to perform? And how important do you think this opinion is for who is going to be named director? Uh, whoever wants to take it first. Dimitri, you're unmuted. We'll go with you. All right. Uh, sure. So uh, to answer the second question first, I think I think the it does raise the stakes for appointments for the appointment of the director for sure. And it's sort of been uh, quite a while now since Biden has been in power and the, that the fact that the director has not been appointed to some people suggest that the uh, priority is maybe not very high or there's potentially controversy about who it's going to be. And I think that just raises the stake and kind of can go both ways. You can either rush the appointment process because the director um, you know, may have this, will have this increased power that the Supreme Court gave uh, him or her, right? Or um, it would just create more controversy because the stakes are so much higher. Uh, as to Drew Hirschfeld, right, there's a lively debate in the IP Profs uh, thread. And I think one of the exceptions to sort of um, the, um, the advice and consent requirement is an acting or the person performing the duties of. Uh, and, and the Thomas opinion cites a case called United States v. Eaton, right? Uh, which says that, uh, right, you can have a sub subordinate officer called the vice consul to be charged with the duty of temporarily performing the functions of the consul office, right, is still okay, right? And and I think um, it sounds like actually, at least under this Eaton precedent, the acting director can constitutionally be that final word for the agency, which of course is an exception to uh, the, the the rule of Edmund in, in a way, right? But, but I think it's an exception that's been, um, that's been baked in for a long time. And it's actually one of the precedents that Thomas relies upon. So I think, um, I think it seems okay for Herschel to be carrying it out at the same time. We do want a permanent uh, person in, in power at the PTAB, right? Uh, the, I think a Bob administration was, was criticized for not you know, re replacing uh, Capos after, after Capos stepped down and, and the Michelle Lee appointment, it took quite a while to happen. I think, I think um, it, it does become important for the director to set policy. Of course, the other thing the director can, um, can do is American Axle uh, cases, Section 101 is now on the CVSG and the director often meets with the solicitor general to discuss kind of the PTO's reason. Again, we have sort of a temporary person in charge. That, so I think, I think it creates high stakes. And I think, you know, just kind of from administrating uh, our government perspective, the new director should be appointed as soon as possible. So uh, I agree with Mitri on, you know, the Eaton portion. In fact, it wasn't just Justice Thomas that just pulled up the opinion. Uh, Justice Roberts, the majority opinion endorses. So that's at least five just majority says that uh, if they were officers, they access their limit, limited power under special and temporary conditions, meaning kind of those people who are acting, right? And he specifically says the United States with obviously Eaton is talking about exercising function of, of a principal officer on an acting basis. So I think that part is okay. I think it would be a little crazy given how many people we need to go to a center confirmation to say, well, unless if the office is empty, even on a temporary basis, then basically has to shut down. So I think that, and the president seems to support it. On selection of a patent office director, I guess I maybe moderately disagree or slightly disagree with me too. I think it's, I don't think it doesn't matter, but I think it, it matters marginally. Because to the extent 
you know, and let's, you know, just as a placeholder terms, let's, you know, hypothetically say, look, that director Yanko was more pro-Patton than director Michelle Lee. And I know people will debate those terms and say, well, what does it mean? But just for purpose of placeholder terms, right? So let's assume like, you know, that dichotomy that, um, you know, so they were selected based on their views of the patent regime and how PTAP and general patent officers operate by their respective presidents, uh, even before they had this power to review decisions. Like I said, I don't suspect patent officers actually will review, you know, any of these decisions directly. Maybe if they do, maybe they'll review one, right? I don't think it's gonna be any different than what they're doing now with a, you know, presidential opinions panel. So to the extent that President Biden has a particular vision of patent world or what it ought to be like or world competition, I think that person who would be more willing to kind of to get involved in integrity adjudication, he probably would be getting involved with the same view that he would have been bringing to the office, even if he couldn't get involved because he would just be bringing it through rulemaking and through selection of panels, et cetera. So I don't think it doesn't matter at all, but I think ultimately the difference is fairly marginal, if for no other reason than that government in this case said time and time again that, look, the reason why these APGs are not principal officers is because don't worry, the director has a lot of authority. And if that's true, right, that adding just a little bit more authority, I don't think ought to really make a difference as to from which column, like I said, it's gonna be more Michelle Lee, like it's gonna be more like David Kappas, like it's gonna be more Andre Yanko, like, President Biden will, will pay. Great. Uh, so our time is winding down. We have no questions. So I guess what I'm going to ask from the gentleman is you, you have a minute or two to get in your last words and we'll start with Greg. Uh, thank you. Uh, so uh, like I said, I'll finish where I started. So it was, it's always a fascinating discussion. It's always a pleasure sort of to go head to head against Dimitri if for no other reason, even if though I may remain unconvinced, but at least I always learned something. Uh, and uh, so I will say this, that ultimately this decision left me completely unsatisfied because it sort of, it does perhaps advance the ball forward a little bit to, for those of us who are of the view that kind of administrative state needs a bit more uh, pruning in terms of, at least in terms of its constitutional structure, it needs more kind of be brought back within the kind of the tripart system of government. And I'm not talking about like what administration should or should not do, but kind of how it should be structured. So it doesn't move the world forward a little bit, but uh, it ultimately, at the kind of the last moments of chickens out, it says like, look, the system is almost fine the way it is, which is gonna make this one change that's really not gonna make any difference on the ground in 99.99% of the time, if not more. And then everything is gonna be fine. And um, although like I said, formalism is not a bad thing, but, and so if Congress had written the statute that way, I think it would be fine. What concerns me is this sort of tendency by the court, uh, Justice Gorsuch uh, in his dissent, that uh, you know tries to rewrite the statute, tries to kind of, uh, while the court on one hand tells Congress, look, you're delegating perhaps too much power, you're sort of to people who are not properly appointed, at this, and at the very same breath, says like, okay, but we're gonna take congressional power and rewrite the statute ourselves. So, and that's a little disconcerting. And so my final word is, like I said, um, I wish, just like Justice Gorsuch, I wish the court would have gotten to a different decision in oil states making this decision unnecessary. It would have been cleaner. Since they didn't get to it in oil states, I think that's why we are a bit in this morass. So, but, you know, I guess more cases are coming up and I think kind of the, the battle is never, you know, the, the war is never over, just like, you know, we're moving on from one battle to the other. Me too. Yeah. 
Um, I'll, I'll second the point. It's always a pleasure to discuss things with Greg. And, you know, Greg is is always in good faith on legal arguments. But I, I think, you know, um, a part of not I think not not everyone is. And, you know, the, for some, I think the dislike of the PTAP sort of led to some of this litigation. That's why this opinion. So for maybe appointments clause purposes, those who want to control agency structure is a good result. Uh, but as a disappointment, if your end goal, right, is to um, is to make this age, you know, part of the agency uh, go go away. But in terms of on the substantive point, um, uh, right, I, I was in, in a sort of the court's role and, you know, discussions of sort of judicial activism and so on. I was reading sort of some old Federal Society documents in preparation for this. And Robert Bork, I think, has a really interesting quote, right? Given the complexity and opacity of social phenomena, uh, cases will arise in which the court is unsure. It must decide in fa- if so, it must decide in favor of governmental action. Since the danger of being wrong seems rightly equal in either direction, the court has no basis for setting aside political judgment. Well, the court has set aside political judgment in this case, and I think it's somewhat disappointing, right? And I think Thomas sort of is true. Uh, Thomas is the one justice who doesn't like constitutionalizing everything, whether it's on so-called ideological left or right, you know, whether it's even kind of in the between issues like constitutionalizing first, you know, tort law through First Amendment, right, dignitary towards punitive damages and so on. And I think um, I think he's sort of true to that view in the end. And maybe the majority isn't necessarily. And and so, uh, right, because it's not clear if sort of the, the accountability issue that Greg mentioned, right, is it accountability for bad nominations, for bad decisions? There's a lot of slippage in that opinion. I think um, I, I am unsure if, if that's wrong, that the founders would have disliked the structure. And I think if you're unsure, I think it's better to leave things be. But uh, the court the court has not, but further further harm was avoided. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe nothing to be um, too disappointed about in the end. Okay. And with that, uh, I want to thank our attendees for uh, being here today and thank uh, to my friends, Greg and Dimitri, for a very great discussion uh, and the tagline, 99 problems with the PTAB and the Constitution or the Appointments Clause isn't one of them. So, uh, Nick, back to you. Thanks very much. Thanks for a great discussion. Uh, Of course, thank you to our panelists and to our moderator, uh, Kristen. Thanks very much for your time and the benefit of your expertise today, uh, this morning or this night, as the case may be. Uh, for Greg. Um, and thank you to our audience for calling in. Uh, usually you're good questions, but I suppose we covered everything. Uh, as always, we welcome your feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. Also check your email and our website for announcements about upcoming Zoom events like this one, especially as we get towards the end of the term. We're covering all these cases this week, next week, and possibly the week after. Uh, but until that next event, thanks all for joining us. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.